Okay, tonight we are on the fourth sola, soli deo gloria. Soli deo gloria means to God alone be the glory. And uh, after all, who else can receive the glory? Who else can receive the glory? God deserves all the glory. He deserves every bit of it. Now, some of us, from time to time, and I've read this in books too, have had a discussion around here about if there's an overarching theme in the Bible, a theme that kind of encompasses the whole Bible, what would that theme be? We've talked about that, and some have said, well, many say that theme would think about that. What do you think it would be? Many think that would be salvation. And they think, well, salvation from beginning to end is what the Bible's all about, so that's the overarching theme of the Scripture, right? Some would say, no, it's not a salvation, it's kingdom, or the idea of the kingdom of God, which is mentioned quite a bit in the Scriptures, and some would say that. Others would say, no, it's, death, it's the death and resurrection of Christ. That is what the overall theme of the Scripture is. And other ideas have been put forth. But I can tell you, uh, I personally don't think that we can have, this is my opinion, one overarching theme of the Bible because there's some really prominent themes in the Scripture. However, if I were to venture a guess, and I were to say, here's my guess at one overarching theme of the Bible, I would have to say the glory of God. And I think that I would not be far off from wrong if I said that. I say it, first of all, because... The inspired Word of God says what it teaches. All that it teaches is about the glory of God, right? It all tends to the glory of God in some way or another. Secondly, the Scripture itself has a lot to say about that particular subject. The glory of God says so many things about it. You see it everywhere, Old Testament, New Testament. It's all over the place talking about the glory of God. Now listen, as I, and I've given you some notes with a ton of verses on it because I'm going to You'll have those to follow. There's some quotes on there as well. I put that on there so you can see it. And listen as I read some of these references in the Bible about the glory of God. Exodus 24, 16. The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. Numbers 14, 21. As I live, says the Lord, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. 1 Kings 8, 11. The priest could not stand to minister in the temple. Because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Psalm 104, 31. Let the glory of the Lord endure forever. Ezekiel 10, 4. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the threshold of the temple, and the temple was filled with the cloud, and the cloud was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. New Testament as well. John 17, 1. Jesus spoke these things as he's praying to his Father. He lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Romans 4.20 With respect to the promise of God, Abraham did not waver in faith, but rather, what did he do? He grew strong in faith, doing what? Giving glory to God. Everything he did tended to the glory of God. 1 Peter 4.16 If anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. And there are many, many more references to the glory of God. You see it throughout the Scripture, all over the place. Unfortunately, we talk about it so many times, and I think the glory of God has become the catch-all answer to all theological questions, right? If you don't know the answer to a question that's got to do with the Bible, you just simply say, the glory of God. Or that's to glorify God, that's the answer, to glorify God. And that would be true, however, I think the, ter- the term glory of God has lost some force because it's kind of thrown around like that for everything. I don't think we realize the magnitude of this term in the Scripture. Now, I want to give two definitions of 
this term, glory of God, so we can fully understand what we're talking about when we say the glory of God or when we say we need to glorify God. Those are two different things in some ways. What is the glory of God? That is the good question. (laughs) And both R.C. Sproul and John Piper say it's not an easy task to define that term, the glory of God. You know, we never really define that, do we? We say it all the time, nobody defines it. But the Bible mentions it in two different ways. First of all, and I've got these terms down so you can see it, there's what we call the intrinsic glory of God, intrinsic glory of God. There's the ascribed glory of God. I'll explain this. Intrinsic, ascribed. First, intrinsic glory of God, which is in your notes. It means that it's something that's natural to God, something that's in his nature already. It's essential to his nature. It comes out of his nature, just who he is. Okay? It's intrinsic to him. And so intrinsic glory is this, and here's the definition. That's the revelation of all that God is. The glory of God is the revelation of all that God is. It is the sum total of all his divine perfections and holy attributes. It's the sum total of all his character qualities, all that he is, together. Glory of God. Now, MacArthur and his guys in his theology book say this, God's glory refers to the consummate beauty of the totality of his perfections. Totality of his perfections. It's his supreme significance and splendor. So we're talking about the sum total of all of God's perfections, all of God's attributes together, Together, we say, this is the glory of God. And nobody can add to his intrinsic glory. Nobody can add to the glory of God because God is perfectly glorious. He is who he is in himself. He doesn't need us to add to that at all. All right, secondly, there is ascribed glory, which is the praise and honor due to his name. That's the glory we must give to God. We ascribe glory to his name. We give him praise, right? We give him honor. That's what we talk about glorifying God One of the ways we do that is by giving him honor and glory. We praise him. And so we're able to glorify this perfectly glorious God that we have. We praise him. Now, in the Old Testament, there's different words that describe the glory of God. Primary term for the glory of God in the Old Testament means a heavy weight. It's it's as if, you know, in the Old Testament, you had rich people like Abraham, and they had a lot of possessions like cattle and so on. And so you took a wealthy man like that, and then if you were to weigh his possessions, boy, if you weighed the possessions of Abraham, it'd really be heavy, right? You had a lot, a lot there. And so the, more, the, more, the richer he was, the more his possessions would weigh. And so they would say of a person like that, this man carries weight in his society. He, he carries influence in his realm of, of, of the people he deals with. He carries weight in that society. He's a weighty individual, we'd say. So... The term came to mean significant. He's a significant individual. And that's how God is. God demands God is significant, the greatest significance of all, because he has the most weight of any person in the universe, of anyone in the universe. He, he is weightier than anyone. His influence is weightier than anyone, more felt than anyone. He demands the greatest respect of anyone, because he's infinitely significant, infinitely worthy. He's incomparable, and so we should give him the utmost reverence. So that's something to say about the glory of God. Then there's the the glory of God filling the tabernacle in the Old Testament, in Exodus. And then it filled the temple later on in 1 Kings. And that was such a dramatic thing when it filled. There's bright glory that filled that no one could even work in the the temple or tabernacle as it was happening. We call it the Shekinah glory. In the New Testament, the word for glory is doxa. I'm telling you this because we get from what from that word? Doxa? We get doxology, right? from that word. And uh, doxa can mean, it can mean brightness, it can mean radiance, splendor, 
Or it can mean praise or honor, depending on the context. It's used, for example, in the, in the, in the events surrounding the birth of Christ. Luke chapter 2, verse 9, And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before the shepherds, and the glory, the docks of the glory of the Lord, shone round about them. This glory shone in its great brightness and splendor. They were terribly frightened. Can you imagine being there? All of a sudden, this brilliant light is everywhere, and, and you're frightened. Frightened because this is the glory of God on display. The glory of God was seen in Jesus as well uh, when he was on earth. John 1.14, the word became flesh, right? And dwelt among us and we saw his glory. It says we saw his glory. Don't pass over that too quickly. So when Christ was on earth, they saw his glory. They may have rejected him, but they saw his glory. As of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, the word dwelt there. Uh, his, his, when, when Christ it says Christ dwelt among us in the flesh, it means uh, to tabernacle or to pitch a tent. And so there's an allusion to the Old Testament, Old Testament tabernacle there that was filled with the glory of God, and the same is true of Christ in the New Testament. He's filled with the glory of God. And the Bible has so much to say about this subject. It goes on and on and on talking about this. So we come up with the solely, as we look back on the Reformation, soli deo gloria, the motto of the Reformation one of the mottos, to God alone be the glory. Now, all of you here have probably heard of the great composer, Johann Sebastian Bach. But did you know that this great composer, at the, at the bottom of every one of his, composition, his musical compositions, he put the initials SDG, Soli, Deo, Glory, every single composition. Because why? He wanted people to know that, you know, I'm not here to get glory for myself as a composer, and he was a famous composer. The glory belongs to God. And him alone. He gets all the glory. And since we're talking about the Reformation, what did the Reformers have to say about the glory of God? Well, they had much to say, but I want to just focus on one Reformer. That's John Calvin. What did Calvin say? Listen to this statement. Calvin had this to say. He said, ever since in the creation of the universe, God brought forth those distinguishing marks whereby he shows his glory to us. Whenever and wherever we cast our gaze... And since the glory of his power and wisdom shine more brightly above, heaven is called his palace. Yet, wherever you cast your eyes, there is no spot in the universe wherein you cannot discern at least some sparks of his glory. No spot in the universe, think about that, where you cannot see some evidence of the glory of God. Wherever you cast your gaze, to the left, to the right, anywhere, you're going to see some evidence of the glory of God as you view that. He also said this, the whole world is a theater for the display of the divine goodness, wisdom, justice, and power, but the church is the orchestra, as it were, the most conspicuous part of it. In other words, God's glory is on display everywhere, all throughout the world, everywhere you go. However, especially is it on display in the church, and it should be on display in the church, and if it's not on display in the church, it's a real problem because the world is, not, is going to be is going to be uh, not benefit from that. And so when I read these statements, I, I couldn't help but think of two verses in the Scripture. I thought of Psalm 19.1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. And in their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. As he, he talks about the whole world's a theater for the glory of God, right? On display. And so when you look at the, the heavens, it's telling the glory of God and the work of His hands. My brother was always, when I was a kid growing up, he always had telescopes in the backyard. That was his thing. I was playing football. He was doing scientific stuff. 
He always had a telescope back there, and he'd say, hey, let's look at the stars. And we would do that, and he, and he got an electrical one one day. They got into the, you know, they got to big time. It got electrical, and it would move with the stars. Oh, this is really cool. And we'd look at those things. It was just amazing. And that's, and that's what happens when we cast our gaze to the heavens. We see the glory of God on display. So Calvin could say the whole world's a theater with, for the display of the divine goodness, justice, and power. But secondly, I, I didn't think just about that verse. I thought of Ephesians 4, uh, 3.21. To, to God be the glory where? In the church. <laughs> to God be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Wow. God's glory is to be shining through the church, right? I think, now you look back, you look at the churches today. You look at our churches today in America, and I think, I'm thinking to myself, I don't see that happening. I don't see the glory of God display on churches now because everybody is trying to attract attention to themselves. They're trying to grow into super churches and mega churches and all this stuff and doing all kinds of things to get people in. I don't see the glory of God display in these places. It should be on display in the church. You know, the glory of God was what motivated John Calvin his whole life was given, uh, however imperfect this man was, all these guys are imperfect, by the way. Everybody talked about Luther a couple weeks ago. This, Luther was an imperfect man who did a, who did a, that God used him to do a great thing. But an imperfect man. So was Calvin. But the glory of God motivated John Calvin. In 1538, you know, this is after the Reformation had run its course for a little while, had, had been around for a while, 1538. There was a cardinal in the Roman Catholic Church named Cardinal Satellet. And he decided to write a letter to the leaders in Geneva, Switzerland. The leaders in Geneva, Switzerland were John Calvin and his group, although Calvin was out of the pulpit at that time. Calvin was in and out of the pulpit, depending on how the church felt about him. So he was out, but nevertheless, they wrote a letter, the cardinal did, to the leaders in Geneva, knowing these guys are strong in the Reformation. I'm going to write them a letter. And his purpose in writing them, what was it? To try to win them back to the Roman Catholic Church. They knew they blew it. (laughs) They knew the Reformation had taken place. They knew these guys were out preaching the gospel. They were preaching the scripture. The scripture was put in the limelight as it was hidden all those years. And now it's put forth in the limelight. So this guy, this cardinal says, I better write these guys. Maybe I can win them back through my writing. He writes this huge, long letter. Calvin takes a long time to think about it. He decides to respond the next year, but he does respond. And look, there were things that the cardinal talked about, like justification by faith and how he disagreed with that and the power and the authority of the pope and and Calvin disagreed with all these things, but there was something more foundational in Calvin's mind than just all this stuff. And what was that? It was the glory of God. The glory of God was what it was all about for Calvin. So Calvin responds to the cardinal, and he says this. He says, Cardinal Satellet, is it, it is not very sound theology to confine a man's thoughts so much to himself and not to set before him as the prime motive of his existence zeal to illustrate the glory of God. For we are born, first of all, for God and not for ourselves. Listen to this. This is on your notes. Calvin says, the prime motive for our existence, here's why we're here, folks. Prime motive for our existence is zeal to illustrate the glory of God. In other words, we're not here for ourselves, he says. He says this to the cardinal. We're here to be a living illustration of the glory of God. That's why the people of God are here. That's the only reason we're here. And we should be zealous for that goal. And that's what a believer should be all about. Zealous to illustrate the glory of God in your life. Think about this. Are you illustrating in your life day by day, on your job, in the neighborhood where you're at, are you illustrating the glory of God? Are you doing that? That's an interesting way to look at it, isn't it? Now, you know, maybe you've heard the, the famous 
the famous question and answer from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, and that is the first question on there, primary question, is this, what is the chief end of man? What's the main purpose of mankind? Why are we here? What's our goal in life? What are we here for? The answer is this, man's chief end, his main purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why we're here, to glorify God and not, as, as the old joke goes, to endure him forever, but to enjoy him forever. Is that what's happening? Has it ever occurred to you that our main purpose in life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever? Well, it may have occurred to us, but we seem to think in, our, in, our, in reality that our real goal in life is to pursue our selfish ambitions, our selfish ends. And then what we do, we give God the leftovers, right? I mean, let's face it. Isn't it true that oftentimes God is secondary to believers to us, not primary? That's often the case. And all I, all I have to do is think back on last week. <laughs> I look back on last week and I say to myself, didn't exactly glorify God and enjoy him like I should have. I didn't do that. And so Calvin says the prime motive for our existence, the reason we're even here. Think about why are you here? Why are you here? For, and people will give you a thousand answers to that question. Calvin says the prime motive for our existence is to illustrate, to be zealous, to illustrate the glory of God. That's why you're here. That's why God's people are here. There was a famous scholar named B.B. Warfield, and he said of Calvin, he said, no man ever had a profounder sense of God than he. No man ever had a profounder sense of God than Calvin. That's high praise for Calvin. That's high praise for anybody. Can you imagine someone saying that at your funeral? This man, this woman had such a profound respect for the glory of God instead of what the truth is often. (laughs) They would say that instead. That's high praise, but with all due respect to Mr. Warfield, I can think of some people who may have had a more profound respect and praise and glory, for the glory of God than Calvin even. What about Christ himself? Jesus said in John 17, 4, I glorified you on the earth, accomplished, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. How many of us can say right now, at this point in our life, man, I've, I've accomplished everything that God wants me to do at this point in my life. I've accomplished everything to his glory. That'd be, that'd be tough to say. And Jesus could say, he could even pray in verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Who else could pray this kind of prayer? Who else could pray that? It's safe to say that no one had a profounder sense of the glory of God than Christ, right? But when it comes to mere mortal men, we have an example of that in Scripture too. What about Moses? Moses, Exodus 33, 11, he said, it says this, Thus the Lord used to speak to, with Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, of course we know when it says he spoke face to face, it's talking about the fact that he had a unique relationship with Moses. He had a close relationship with Moses, didn't literally speak to him face to face. We know that from the rest of the chapter as, as you read through Exodus 33. But he had this unique respect, or relationship with, with Moses, God did. And, and uh, instead of, and, you know, look at, at Exodus thirty-three eighteen. I think they have that in your notes. Exodus 33, 18, in the same chapter, Moses says to the Lord, show me your glory. <laughs> I want to see your glory. He had had a rough time with the Israelites. They weren't obeying like they should. And he says, I need to see your glory, God, in spite of all, in, in light of all this. What a request that is. And the Lord says, he'll show us Moses his glory, but... You're not going to see my face. You're not going to literally see my face. So that's why we know that's the earlier reference meant something else. 
No one can see the full brightness of God's glory and live. Nobody can do that. If you saw the brightness, the full brightness of God's glory, you would die. You'd absolutely die. The, the joke is when uh, Oral Roberts saw the 900, had the vision of the 900-foot Jesus while he was shaving, I think this is an illustration, Mike, uh, that he was, you know, he just kept on shaving or whatever, and, uh, and, and it, is, it is said, no, if, if you had a vision of God like that, you would cut yourself while you were trying to shave because nobody's going to see the full brightness of the glory of God and, and be unmoved by it. So Moses has treated his experience like no other. The Lord passes in front of him, and he proclaims, and he covers Moses from being exposed to his full blazing glory. And, but Moses does get a glimpse of his glory, quite a glimpse of his glory. And as the Lord passes by, he proclaims his character to Moses. This is the glory of God. The character of God is the glory of God. It's all who he is, right? His perfections, his attributes, his character qualities. And you see it in this verse. He passes by Moses and he, and he says he proclaims his compassion and great. Read Exodus 33 later on. Complain, he, he says in 34, he proclaims his compassion and grace and love and patience and truth and forgiveness and judgment. Guess what? That would give anybody a profound sense of God. Moses saw this up close and personal. Now somebody says, well, how can we get this profound sense of God today? Well, the same way Calvin did, by studying the Word of God, by studying His Word. And we see God in His Word. And and this Word leads us to a more profound sense of God and an awareness that we need to be glorifying God. That's why we read our Bibles. Why do we always say, Mike said it this morning again, why do we say it every week? Read your Bibles, because if you, desire, if you desire to glorify God, you have to read your Bible. So you can see who God is in the Scripture and get this profound sense of God, and then you'll glorify Him. When we move to the New Testament, not just Moses or Christ, or, or Moses rather, but when we move to the New Testament, we have another example. We have many examples. But I'm talking about what my oldest son told me the other day was the example for every sermon, the Apostle Paul. I'm thinking of him because sprinkled throughout his letters are doxologies. This word, doxology is a word of praise to God, and he does it again and again. Read the letters of Paul. Read his letters, and you're going to see that every once in a while he just breaks out and prays to God, and he says, basically, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Sometimes these doxologies are a little shorter. Sometimes they're a bit longer. Listen as I read some of these, just a handful. Romans 11:36. For from him and through him, and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. Amen. He says this, he just breaks it. Romans 16, 27. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. Philippians 4, 20. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You talk about a broken record. We've been talking about sounding like a broken record. Paul sounds like a broken record. Why? He's always glorifying God. It's what he thinks about all the time. So Paul was obviously a man who had a profound sense of God. You know what? Think about this. The more you know God, the more you love God, the more you walk with God, the more you obey God, guess what? The more profound your sense of God's going to be. You're going to have a great sense of God. And Paul was this man. He was this kind of man. So the rest of the message, I want to focus on one passage and one verse especially, and that is in 1 Timothy 1. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Go to verse 12. 1 Timothy 1.12. Now, in 1 Timothy 1.12-17, we have a personal account of the testimony of Paul, his conversion experience. It's a great, absolutely great passage. It really is. 
It's an account full of gratitude. Paul's just extremely grateful for, his, for, for what God has done in his life. Look at verse 12. You can see right from the beginning, uh, the words that begin it are, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. Already we can see he's thankful. Let's read verse 12 through 17. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into the service. Even though before I, or I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance in Christ, that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason, I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So in light of, of what God has done in Paul's life, he's extremely thankful. He starts off by saying, I thank, I thank the Lord for this. Let's, let's look at this. There's three main points here. I'm not going to major on the first two. First of all, Paul is thankful for his ministry. He's thankful for his ministry. Verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. And amazing. Think about how amazing this is. This man who was once persecutor of the church, trying to destroy the church, is now in the ministry. God put him in the ministry to serve him, a minister of the gospel. Look at verse 11. According to verse 11, Paul was entrusted with the gospel. He's entrusted with this great treasure. It's something he has to, to watch over and be careful with. And other places in, this, in the New Testament, it says he's got a, this is a stewardship. He's been given a stewardship. He has to watch over, and he's got to be responsible for it. And uh, he's got to be careful with it. So Paul has a sacred, sacred trust from God to discharge, and he's got to do this thing. It's both his, his responsibility and his privilege to preach the gospel, and he's thankful for it. And he never gets over it, never gets over it. And you see, you see it in other places, Acts 22, Acts 9, Acts 26. And what is he doing? He's thanking God for this opportunity to serve God. And, and, and he talks about his salvation. Number two, Paul's thankful for his salvation. He doesn't try to hide who he was in the past. He doesn't do that. He comes out and says, look, folks, I was a blasphemer. Think about this, the Apostle Paul. I used to be a blasphemer. I used to be a persecutor. I used to be a violent aggressor. And I think of all the people that God has saved through the centuries like this. They used to be this way, and then, and then God takes them and saves them and turns their life around completely. In Acts 26, 11, Paul said, <clears throat> I tried to force believers to blaspheme the name of Christ. I've read some books about Soviet Union. When they had... Uh, Back in the day, when they had uh, they were they were persecuting Christians, and, and they tried to do that, they tried to get guys to uh, Christians to blaspheme Christ. And here Paul says, "I did the same thing. I tried to get Christians to blaspheme the name of Christ. I directed all my hostilities against Christ." And he says that in several verses, Galatians one thirteen, for you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. His goal was to wipe out the church. All, Look, his goal was not to try to take a little, you know, take this guy out or that guy out. His, church, his goal was to destroy the church entirely and completely. That's what he wanted to do. And so he goes on the road to Damascus, and Christ appears to him, and, he said, and, and Christ says to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? Why are you doing this to me? This is my church and me are together in this thing. We're identified together. And, and his persecution was not gentle. It was not lenient. 
It was not merciful. He's called, what's he called here? A violent aggressor. Let those words sink in. Paul was a not, he was, he, he was a violent aggressor, it says. At the stoning of Stephen in Acts 8.3, you know, Saul was standing there holding the clothes of those who were watching the clothes of those who were stoning Stephen. And it says Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. Killing. Let's put him to death. Acts 9.13. Acts 9.13 says, he did much harm to the saints. It's other verses that says he dragged men and women, hauled them off to prison. He's a violent aggressor. So violent. He goes on to say later in these verses, I'm the foremost of sinners. And Paul knows that it's only by God's grace and mercy and love that he's saved and he's thankful for this. And then thirdly, Paul's thankful for his king. He's thankful for his king. Verse 17, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And this is where we'll spend the rest of our time. Doxology, as I said, and this is a doxology in verse 17, is a word of praise. Paul's so grateful for what God has done, he breaks out in praise to the Lord. And to, the, to Paul, the Lord is both king and God. King and, God. and uh, you know, first of all, he dresses the Lord as king. Now, this is rare for Paul to do. He doesn't call God king very often. And when he does, we need to take notice. Stephen read 1 Timothy 6. 15, which says that God is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's called the King of kings there. But this idea of God being king came from the Old Testament. Like, for example, Psalm 10:16, The Lord is king forever and ever, it says there. It says this references several places. Psalm 24:10, Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. Who, who else would it be? Jeremiah 10:10, 10, 10, The Lord is the true God, the everlasting king says this again and again. And of all the references to God being king in the Old Testament, this is where Paul gets his theology from, probably the most famous is Isaiah 6.5. Isaiah, Isaiah 6 is having the vision of God, and he sees God, and he has this vision. He's high and lifted up, it says. And Isaiah sees this, and he responds by saying this, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. Why? Does he say this? For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. I've seen the king, and now I'm undone. I realize, you know, when we understand that God is king, what can we do but confess our sins and humble ourselves before him? What else can we do? We realize he's got all authority. You know, kings rule, and kings possess authority, and the Lord, the king of kings, has absolute rule, and he has universal authority. And so, and yet, at the same time, he's gracious, he's merciful, he's kind, as he saved Paul from his sins. But those who resist this authority of God are going to have their error pointed out to them definitely one day, unless they submit to the king. Now, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, it talks about the king. In 1 Timothy 2, 2, Paul says, pray for kings and for all who are in authority. We need to pray for kings. But their authority, earthly kings' authority, only goes so far. Some more than others. You know, Nebuchadnezzar ruled over much area, and he thought he was, a, he, thought he was the king of kings in some ways. Read Daniel chapter 4. Found out, he found out he wasn't. But the king of kings exercises authority everywhere. Everywhere. He's not one of many kings. He is the king. He's a sovereign lord. He's talking about sovereignty here. And how is he described as king? Look at 1 Timothy 1.17. He's called the king eternal, first of all. King eternal. Or literally, the king of the ages. In other words, he's the king for all time. He's the king from every age, from creation onward. 
always the king. God rules in past. He rules in present. He rules in future. And that is why in verse 16 he can give eternal life because he, he, he's the eternal king. And when we're dealing with the king of kings, we're dealing with things that are eternal. You know, earthly kings and rulers, they're here for a while, but they, <clears throat> they come and go, but not Christ. He's eternal. You know, when Jesus was before Pilate, remember that in John chapter 19, he's before Pilate? A man of much authority, and Pilate is asking him questions on his trial, and he doesn't answer anything at all. And Pilate says, you do not speak to me? Don't you know that I have authority to release you? I have, I have authority. He says it twice. I have authority. Don't you know? You're talking to a guy with authority here, okay? Christ. I have authority. I have authority to release you. I have authority to crucify you. Don't you know who I am? Jesus answered, I wish I could have heard this. You would have had no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Why? It's the king of kings who grants earthly kings, earthly rulers their authority, right? And his rule is not temporary. It's permanent. So he's the king eternal. Secondly, he's the king immortal, meaning he's not subject to decay. He's not subject to death. He's not subject to destruction. He's not subject to corruption or any of these things. You could even say he's imperishable. It's another word you could translate here. The Lord is immortal, not subject to the corruption human beings are. But I will tell you this, <clears throat> corrupt human beings will do all they can to try to supplant his authority, like in Romans 1. In Romans 1, it says the ungodly exchange the glory of the incorruptible God. That's the same word translated immortal in 1 Timothy 1, incorruptible. He's incorruptible. They tried to, to exchange the glory of the incorruptible, immortal God for an image made in the form of corruptible man. You see the contrast? Incorruptible God, corruptible man. The ungodly hate the very thought of glorifying God. They can't stand the thought of it. Their chief aim in life is to rob God of his glory. Why do you think atheists and people like this are always... You ever notice how mad and angry atheists get at God? They're always angry. It's like they say they don't believe in God, but why are they so angry? It's because they believe in God. And they're, they're resisting him, and they know it too. But the resistance of rebellious mankind doesn't change the fact that he's immortal. It takes an immortal God to save a mortal man or save a mortal woman from, from their sins. 1 Timothy 6.15 says he alone has immortality. No one else does. He's a king immortal. Thirdly, he's a king invisible. He's spirit, and therefore he's invisible. But that, just because he's invisible doesn't prevent God from being known. He's made his presence known without a doubt. Romans 1.20, again, says God's attributes, invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. God's invisibility is clearly seen. Why? We look at creation, we can see it. We can see what he did in the work of creation. And that is why people are without excuse before God, because they can see this. They can see the invisible God because he makes his presence known in creation. And he made it known in Christ either. Also, 15, Christ is the image of the invisible God. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. When they, people saw Christ on earth, they saw God in the flesh. So they can see the invisible God. Now, some people like Thomas... They have to see in order to believe. But the believer who knows God, really knows God from the Scripture, knows you, can, you, you know you can trust in Him. You know you can follow Him. Hebrews 11.27 says that Moses was able to endure all his trials because he saw Him who was unseen. He was able to see Him who was unseen. He was able to trust God even though God was unseen. That's called walking by faith, not by sight. We too can endure 
the difficulties of life, if we'll look at the, the, him who is unseen, that's the king Paul served, that's the king we serve, immortal, invisible, eternal, right? Next, Paul addresses the Lord as God. Look at 1 Timothy 1.17, he says, to the only God. The only God. The doxology in Romans 16.27 says, to the only wise God. You know, everybody wants their own brand of God, right? Everybody wants their own God to serve. They make up a God they want to serve. But the Bible is very exclusive, extremely exclusive on the issues. Only one God, and that's that's the way it is. The Lord is the only true God. I love 1 Corinthians 8, 5 and 6. Paul said, even if there are so-called gods, so-called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, in other words, people say there are, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things, and we exist for him. We exist for him. That's what Calvin said earlier. We exist for him. It's why we're here. And one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, it says. Nobody, not everybody knows. That's why you talk to people about the gospel. That's why you explain to them. They don't have a biblical knowledge of this God who is to be glorified. They don't have a biblical knowledge of his exclusivity, that he's exclusively God alone. You ever talk to people and you... They tell you a bunch of weird stuff. You're talking to somebody about the gospel, and they have all weird ideas about God, and about the Holy Spirit, and about Christ, and about everything. It's because they don't have this knowledge. They don't understand these things. Satan is blinding their minds, so they don't believe. And they have all these weird ideas to, in place. And so they'll tell you all kinds of strange things about God, but Scripture says he's the only God. He's king and he's God. So Paul, overflowing with gratitude, says, Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory. Honor and glory. The word honor has to do with the price or value of something. Something is very valuable. In fact, it's translated that way in 1 Corinthians 6.20. 1 Corinthians 6.20, you've been bought with a price. The word price is honor here. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And so, it's, 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 God is valuable. And the term came to mean honor or reverence. And the value of a person. So, we honor God because he's very valuable. He's of, of eternal value. And then glory, glory to God, it says, is the praise we ascribe to him. We talked about ascribing glory to God. Glory is the praise we ascribe to him because of who he is, what he's done. If we spoke Latin, we'd say, soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. How long is he worthy? How long is God worthy of glory and honor? Is there a time limit? Look at verse 17. It says, it's forever and ever. Literally, unto the ages of ages. That's what it means. I've read that this is the strongest... There's no greater expression for eternity that can be found in the Greek language than right here. He's the king for, and the Lord and God forever and ever into the ages of ages. The eternal king deserves eternal praise. The earthly kings think they deserve praise. And they may force the praise, even for a while. But when the cheering stops and their rule's over, it's over with. But the Lord deserves eternal praise. Paul ends the doxology, look at verse 17 with the word amen. So be it. So it is. May it be fulfilled. You know, this is how it should be. We should glorify God. Paul fulfilled, glorified God through his service and through his words. And read the New Testament, read his letters, read the letters of the New Testament. It's going to become very obvious that Paul was one to glorify God. As we close out, let me ask you a question. How about you and I? What about you and I? We talk about these other guys. You know, all these guys we talk about in the past that are great. We think they're all great. But they're flawed people. Trust me, they're flawed. All of them are flawed. Glorifying God is not the exclusive right of people like Calvin or Moses or Paul, not their, their exclusive right. All believers are to glorify God.
God, regardless of who you are. I don't have a name, you say. I don't, I'm not a great preacher. None of that. It doesn't matter. All believers are to glorify God in where, where you live at, where, in your situation. Let me ask yourself this question as this week progresses. Ask this question of yourself. Am I being zealous to illustrate the glory of God in my daily activities and in my words? Am I being zealous to illustrate the glory of God in my daily activities and in my words? Zeal to illustrate the glory of God doesn't mean you've got to be a great preacher. It doesn't mean that at all. It just means you just have to want to put the Lord first in all you do. At your job, wherever you're at, you just want to put the Lord first. Every believer should have as a motto of their life, solely Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful again for your word and for what it teaches us and uh, what it teaches us about you and what it teaches us about ourselves and, and that it teaches us to glorify you. Lord, a lot of tonight, as, 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 or as we go through the week, we just pray you would help us to have that as our goal. As our focus, so many things distract us. We let so many things take us off course. Uh, sin and, and all kinds of things distract us and uh, all kinds of problems. We pray you keep it before us this week that we would glorify you in what we do in all our activities. And we just praise in Christ's name. Amen.